If you are a parent, especially a parent of several kids, I know one thing that might be missing from your life. Laughter. If you are a parent, laughter might be missing from your life. Another thing that might be missing from your life, maybe for all of us, uh, is lamenting and weeping. And after the events of this past week in our country, I think God is calling the church to lament, uh, a spiritual discipline that we don't often think about, let alone do. But God is calling us to weep with those who are suffering. And we're going to talk about that more as the sermon progresses. But if you are a parent, you need to laugh. You need to laugh often or you will lose your mind. To me, laughing is one of the spiritual disciplines and I actively find ways to laugh because I know that if I don't, I will lose my mind because I am a parent of six kids. One source of laughter for me is comedian Jim Gaffigan. And in his book titled Dad is Fat, he talks about how we as parents have to lie to our children sometimes. He says this, I like to think of myself as a relatively honest person. It's usually just easier to be honest. However, the complexity of parenting leads you to lie to your children. Honestly, I'm shocked how often I lie to my children. Cute sentence, right? Maybe they aren't all lies. I suppose some of it is just dishonesty. Some of it's acting. Being a parent of a young child is being an actor. I've been lucky enough to act in movies, TV, and on Broadway, but I believe my finest acting moments have been with my children. Parents of young children are always acting. You act excited to read a story for the 500th time. You act impressed when someone went to the bathroom on the toilet. The excitement that I show to some of my children's scribbles should get me a Golden Globe nomination. Of course, this parental acting is a necessary form of encouragement, Most parental lies just seem pointless and almost abusive. A man from the North Pole who slides down the chimney and brings presents seems so much more believable than a bunny that hides eggs. Somehow little kids believe all this stuff. It's pathetic, really, how gullible they are. I understand that we want them to experience some of the magic of childhood before they are forced to grow up and face the harsh reality of gas bills and root canals, but really... Some of these frauds that we purposely perpetuate are just unnecessary. A fairy that brings you money for your teeth? Who started that one? And why do we keep it going? We are totally pressured into telling this lie because we are terrified that if we are the only honest parents who say, look, you lost a tooth, congratulations, enjoy looking like a hillbilly, here's a dollar that we might be unconsciously depriving our children of some yet unknown but really important stage of development. And we won't find out until it's too late and we find a dead hamster in their backpack. I'm not proud of the lies I tell my children. Some are truly selfish for the wrong reason. Honey, you wouldn't want a bite of daddy's cheeseburger. It's spicy. I don't feel guilty When I deny eating my kids after school snacks, I feel guilty telling them that their mom did. (laughs) Parents, I mean liars, we've all been there before, right? 
trying to muster up that excitement when you have to read Goodnight Moon or The Giving Tree for the thousandth time, or when your budding artist brings you one of their paintings or drawings. In his book, Dad is Fat, Jim Gaffigan includes a picture he received from one of his kids and his response underneath the picture. It says, great job, honey. <laughs> Parents, I mean liars, we've all been there before, right? You look at that drawing, you have no idea what it is, but you act like you just discovered a lost Picasso painting at a garage sale. And the worst part about lying about your kids' artwork is that we proudly display them on our refrigerators. Think for a minute how crazy that idea is. Every time we open the fridge, we see their artwork, and we are confronted with the fact that we are liars. Maybe that's why I eat so much. I'm just trying to find a category for the fact that I'm a pastor and a liar. The truth is, we are all liars. And some of us may be lying about the fact that racism still lives in the darkest and deepest places of our hearts. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But the truth, if you'll believe me, after I just confessed to being a liar, the truth is that I really do love my children's paintings and drawings and scribbles. I'm an artist, so I love the fact that they create these things. I enjoy them. In fact, Piper, our little one, she doesn't call a a canvas. She calls it a Kansas. Can I have another Kansas? I love what they draw because I'm an artist. Even if I can't tell what it is half the time, I love their drawings. But as parents, I think we really do take delight in what our kids do. Of course, we don't take delight in everything that they do because sometimes they do some very, very bad things. But we do take delight in them. We take delight in their paintings. We take delight in their drawings and in their scribbles. And we we put them on display on the fridge. And we do that because we love our kids and we're proud of their efforts. So we delight in the good things that they do. And if we do that, how much more our Father in heaven. How much more does he delight in what we do for him? You see, when you are in union with Christ, when you are adopted into God's family, everything changes. God is your father, and he is the best father that anyone could ever have or ever want. And one of the things that makes the gospel good news is this. God can't remember all the bad things you have done. And he won't forget all the good things you do. God can't remember all the bad things that you've done over the course of your life. Even last week. Even this morning. And he won't forget all the good things that you do. If you are a Christian united by faith to Jesus Christ and in union with him, then everything that you have ever done against God, everything you've ever done against his glory, everything you've ever done against his law, he cannot remember it. And everything that you have ever done for the good of others and for the glory of his name, he won't forget. And that's what we'll see in our passage today. So let's begin 
back at verse 7 in Hebrews chapter 6. We covered it last week, but I told you this is all one big section. Hear the word of the Lord in verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Now remember what we saw last week. The land being described here is a picture of the human heart. And the preacher of Hebrews is describing what happens when the gospel lands on the heart of a believer and when it lands on the heart of an unbeliever. The believer drinks in the rain of the gospel and it produces a crop in their life that is useful to other people. In contrast to that, the unbeliever does not soak in the rain of the gospel and God's word falls on hard ground, just like Jesus said in Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the sower. And as we saw last week, the end for the unbeliever is eternal judgment in hell. Remember what we saw last week. The people that fall away in this passage in Hebrews chapter 6, they're unbelievers. Unbelievers who are very much involved in the church community, but they're not really born again. And their end is to experience eternal judgment forever. But as I said last week, that's not the focus of this passage. The preacher of Hebrews is actually trying to encourage the Hebrews to avoid becoming and remaining sluggish. He's actually encouraging them in Hebrews chapter 6. But because we don't always keep the context in mind, we have made this passage about debating falling away and what it means to fall away and who falls away. Christians are notorious for approaching this passage and debating its meaning. But that's not the point of this passage. We're notorious for focusing on the falling away part and not realizing that this passage is actually meant to encourage us in the gospel. Yes, the preacher gives a refresher here in chapter 6 on what happens to unbelievers when they die, when they fall away into eternal judgment. But what he's really trying to do in this passage is to encourage the Hebrews. And he does that by what he says in verse 9 when he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Though he just described what happens to unbelievers when they die, he feels sure of better things for the Hebrews. Though he's been talking about eternal judgment, the end for unbelievers who are a part of the church community but never trust in Jesus Christ and never repent of their sin, though he's been speaking about eternal judgment, he feels sure of better things for the Hebrews. And what are the better things that he has in mind? It's salvation. What's the opposite of the eternal judgment that he's been talking about? It's salvation. Being delivered from the condemnation of the law. Being delivered from the presence and the power of sin and the hope of resurrection. And the new heavens and the new earth. And being with unbelievers or loved ones who are disciples of Christ. Being with them for eternity and enjoying the trying God God for all of eternity. That's the better things that he has in mind here. It's the gospel. It's being in union with Christ. 
and enjoying all the benefits that come from being in union with him. And how can the preacher be so confident that salvation and eternity with Jesus awaits the Hebrews? There's one word there in verse 9 that tips us off. It's the word beloved. What's interesting about this verse is that the Greek word here for beloved refers to an only child to whom the parents had devoted all of their love. That's what that Greek word beloved means. The Hebrews are the beloved children of God. Christians are loved by God. And that means then that the eternal love that God the Father has always had for His Son Jesus, He now has for you, Christian, just as if you were His only child. Can you imagine being God's only child? And the love and the affection that He would dole out upon you if you were it? That's true of you, Christian. God loves you just as if you were His only child as if you were the only child that he ever had. Because you are in union with Christ, God doles out his love and affection and devotion on you right now just as if you were his only child. That's astonishing and just downright amazing. And this is why the preacher says that he feels sure of better things for the Hebrews because they are God's adopted children, his beloved children. And because they are God's children, The pastor of Hebrews wants to remind them about their heavenly father. And what he tells them about God the father is downright amazing too. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The pastor of Hebrews wants to encourage the Hebrews to keep loving and serving others for God's glory. And that's exactly what he means when he says in verse 7, For land that has drunk in rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So verse 7 and verse 10 are brother verses. They're, They're twin brothers and they're saying the same thing. They're telling us that when the rain of the gospel lands on our hearts and we soak it in, it produces a crop that is useful for the people in our life and then we receive a blessing. In other words, when the gospel lands on the land of your heart, It causes you to do good works for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It stirs up our love for God and our love for others, and we step out to serve them. And all of this is done for the glory of God's name. And when this happens, we receive a blessing from God because God does not forget what we do for others or what we do for the glory of his name. Make no mistake about it. God is not unjust. He is righteous. He does what is right. But in order to understand why God is not unjust, we have to ask the question, why? Why is God not unjust? And the answer is related to the word beloved. God is not unjust because he is a father. That's why the preacher says, for God is not unjust. The word for there is giving us the ground or the reason why he said he feels sure of better things. He feels sure of better things because we are God's beloved children and he is our father. And that's why he feels sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. 
It's because we are God's beloved children and he is our father. And so the preacher roots his confidence here in the character of God, not in the Hebrews' obedience or disobedience. He roots his hope and trust and confidence in the character of God that he is a father. And because God is first and foremost our father, he is not unjust and will never overlook what we do for others and what we do for his glory. He can't remember our sins because Jesus took our blame on the cross, but he will never overlook or forget our good works and the love that we show for his name when we serve the saints. In other words, God can't remember all the bad things you have done, and he won't forget all the good things you do. If you are a Christian, united by faith to Jesus and in union with him, then everything that you have ever done against God, everything you have ever done against his glory, everything that you have ever done against his law, he can't remember it. He took care of that at the cross. And everything that you've ever done for the good of others and the glory of God's name, he won't forget. As a father, he remembers all the good things his kids do. And isn't that what a good father does? Good fathers delight in their children. Not perfectly, of course, because we're all sinners. But good fathers and good mothers and good parents delight in their children and what they do. We take delight when they draw us a picture that looks like a Pablo Picasso painting But we take it and we cherish it and we say, it's the most beautiful painting in the world. What is it? And they tell us what it is and we think, that looks nothing like mommy and daddy. But we tell them we love their scribbles because we really do love them. Yes, sometimes we have to ask what the scribbles and the lines are. But regardless of how accurate our kids' artwork looks, we cherish those things, don't we? And then what do we do with them? We put them on our refrigerators. We put them on display. We take delight in them. And that's exactly what God does for his children. We take the artwork of our good works and our heavenly father puts them on the refrigerator. He shows off. He takes delight in what his children do for his name, for his glory, for his kingdom. And it's all because we are in union with his son. If we weren't in union with Jesus, our good works would be, as Isaiah says, filthy rags. The Net Bible translation captures what Isaiah is saying here. We are all like one who is unclean. All our so-called righteous acts are like a menstrual rag in your sight. The Hebrew word there for filthy rags is literally garment of menstruation. Apart from Jesus, all of our good works are like a menstrual rag. Think about that. Be shocked by that picture and that image. Isaiah is trying to shock you. God is trying to shock you and me about our so-called good works. But because we are in union with Jesus Christ, as Christians, God looks at our good works and he takes joy and delight in them and he puts them on his refrigerator. And even though we are united to Christ by faith, our good works are still tainted with sin. 
The Holy Spirit is working through us to bring about good works, but because we're involved in the process, we bring sin into the equation every single time. All that we do is tainted with sin because we are still sinners. As the Westminster Confession states about our good works, and because as they are good, they proceed from his spirit, and as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Yet notwithstanding, the person of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. And so, Our good works are brought about by the Spirit of God. He's working in our hearts as the rain of the gospel soaks in. But because we are involved, because we still have to do our part, our works are tainted with sin and weakness and imperfection. So our good works would not survive judgment. Our good works could not and cannot stand up to the law, to God's standard of righteousness but they are nonetheless accepted by God because of Jesus. They are accepted in him because we are in union with him. And so God looks upon our weak, sin-stained good works in his son, and he is therefore pleased to accept them and to reward what is sincere, even though they are accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. Our good works could never stand up to the law. We could never meet the law's demands. But in Jesus, God looks and sees them, and he is pleased. Michael Horton said, We cannot please God as a judge, but we can please him as our father. In Christ, God is your father. And one of the ways that you can please your father is by praying and doing everything that you can to see that racism ends in our nation and that racism ends in your heart. Jesus came to save people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. You will please your Father when you do everything that you can to see that racism ends. We can't please God as judge. He's holy. He's perfect. And he demands perfection of every single one of us. But in Christ, by being in union with him, we are accepted as his sons and daughters. And we can please him. We can please our heavenly father with our weak, feeble, and sin-stained good works. And because God is our father, he takes our good works and he puts them on the fridge. Yes, our good works are Not great works of art. They are not spiritual Rembrandts or Michelangelo's. Our good works look like a kid's drawing. They look like a kid's painting. They're not perfect. They're tainted with sin. But our Father proudly displays them on his refrigerator because we are his children. Are our good works tainted with sin and self? Absolutely. But if they are done in love, love for our neighbor and love for God, then they are beautiful to our Father because they are done in his name and for his glory.
God can't remember all the bad things you have done. And he won't forget all the good things you do. He can't remember all of your filthy rags and all the ways that you've been a bad kid. But he will never forget what you do for others. How you love them and work for their good and serve them because you love your heavenly father. All the times and ways that you have served others and you can't even remember them all. Your father in heaven remembers them all. Look again at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The preacher is reminding the Hebrews that God will not overlook their work and the love that they have shown their heavenly father by serving the saints. But we have to ask the question, who are the saints? The saints are those who are in union with Christ, who have been set apart unto God. But in the context, because of the word beloved that we saw back in verse 9, the saints are our brothers and sisters in Christ. The imagery here is one of family. And when our love for our Father results in us serving and loving our brothers and sisters, then it brings God our Father much delight. Think about this. What father doesn't delight to see his children getting along with one another and doing things for one another and serving one another? Even helping out others, even if they're not in your family. Parents, does it not warm your heart When your kids love one another, when they are kind to one another, doesn't it make you say to your spouse, you want to have another one? When they serve one another, when they share their candy with one another? Listen, one of the times that I am most proud of my children and they bring delight to my heart is when they share their candy with their siblings. That's like the height of their love for siblings if they're willing to give up one Skittle out of that bag of Skittles. Anytime your children are loving one another and serving one another and sharing with one another, isn't it the best? That's when your heart is warmed. That's when it makes all those other times fade. Yes, kids bicker and complain and whine and claim that they're bored. And yes, they drive us nuts, right, moms and dads? And we love them through this. But these are not the things that we put in their baby books. We do not take a picture of our kids screaming at one another and put it in a family album and write something below the picture like, our two precious babies duking it about out and about to commit murder. We don't capture those moments, do we? We remember the times that they love and serve and give and say cute things and fall asleep holding their favorite stuffed animal. And that's how God is with his children. He doesn't remember the bad stuff. He doesn't remember the times his kids duke it out at church. And we can sure do that sometimes, right? Christians can be little stinkers in the church. We get angry at one another, we gossip, we slander, we hold grudges, and sometimes we duke it out. But our Father in heaven doesn't remember those times. He remembers and takes delight in the good. He takes delight when his children are loving one another and serving one another. And so when the gospel lands on your heart, 
And you soak in the rain of the gospel and it produces a crop that is useful to your siblings in the church and you serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. It pleases God. And it pleases God because it is the story of his son, Jesus, that stirred you to love and serve your brothers and sisters. The gospel is Good news, the good news of God's Son for bad people, even racists. You know, Jesus is the only human being who can honestly say that he wasn't a racist. But he became one on the cross for all of us racists. The gospel is the good news of God's Son for bad people, bad people like us. And when that message gets down into the nooks and crannies of your heart and you rub it into your pores and it causes you to go and love and serve others, then it pleases God because it's the message and the story of his son Jesus that actually caused you to go love and serve others. God the Father loves his son Jesus. And we see it when God affirms his pleasure with Jesus when he says several times in the Gospels at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus pleased his father when he took delight in doing what his father sent him to do in the incarnation, to live a perfect life for us and to die a perfect death for us. And when the message of the gospel lands on the lands of our hearts and we soak in that gospel rain and then we love and serve others for God's glory, it brings our Father much pleasure. God delights to see his children drinking in the good news of his Son and then to go and labor for and love their brothers and sisters and their enemies. God has now spoken to us in his son. Hebrews 1, 2 says. And when we pay much closer attention to what we've heard, as Hebrews 2, 1 says, that good news, that gospel rain lands on our hearts and it produces a crop, fruit that is useful to others. It gets us out of me mode and into others mode. Serving other people for their good and God's glory. That's what it means to be alive, really. That's what it means to be free, to quit obsessing over the mirror. Freedom comes when you quit obsessing over you. Do you want to be free? Well, look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. There is no freedom to be found by looking inward. There's no freedom to be found by obsessing over you. How you look, what's happening in my heart, what you want, what you should be doing, getting your needs met, you, you, you. There's no freedom in you. It's always and only found outside of you by looking to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, you'll be reminded of God's amazing love. And when you're right, reminded of God's amazing love, you'll want to respond to that love by loving God and loving his children and working and laboring for others because you love Jesus so much and because you want to make much of his name and not yours. 
The Hebrews had been doing this faithfully. They were working hard, serving others, loving their brothers and sisters in Christ, but they needed a fresh reminder about their heavenly father and how he works and what he's like. They needed this reminder. God can't remember all the bad things you have done, and he won't forget all the good things you do. And we need this reminder too, because how often do we get tired of serving and loving? Aren't we all susceptible to that? For those who are laboring faithfully in ministry, isn't it a much needed encouragement that God won't forget what you do as you serve others week in and week out? For those of you who built this set for VBS, isn't it encouragement God's not going to forget all the hours that you put in. For those of you that are planning on serving and all week long in VBS, isn't it encouraging that, that God's not going to forget it? You're going to forget it. 20 years ago, somebody here made snickerdoodle cookies for VBS and you've already forgot about it. And God hasn't. And he remembers all the labor, the blood and the sweat and the tears that you put in at that one VBS. Don't you often find it exhausting to serve here week in and week out? Serve your family, your neighbors? It can feel pointless and futile at times if we're honest with ourselves. So how refreshing to hear that our Heavenly Father delights in all of our labors. And when you think about the events of the past week and the two shootings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and the cops in Dallas and the other cops around the nation, we've got a long way to go with race relations in America. I mean, it's like, it's as if nothing has changed since the civil rights movement of the 60s. It's like we're back to square one. And it can feel hopeless that nothing's changed for African Americans in America. There is hope, but it can feel hopeless. It could be tempting to just give up all the work through the years. And now this, it's like our nation is falling apart. It's just splintering and being ripped apart. But we cannot give up, church, because we've got the answer. We must keep checking our own hearts for the roots of racism. For every single one of us, there are still unevangelized continents in our hearts, deep, deep somewhere, that's called racism. If we're honest with ourselves, that need the gospel, there are lands and places in our hearts that need the good news of the gospel again. So we must keep repenting and grieving and weeping and lamenting, weeping with the African Americans in our country. Coming alongside them and saying, I don't understand, I can't understand, but I want to walk with you and pray with you and and love you and try to understand and put myself in your shoes and, and see what it's like. We must come alongside or law enforcement, and say, I don't know what it's like to leave every day and think you might not come home. And to pray. Pray for our country. And we must keep calling racism the evil that it is, and we must keep declaring the liberating power of the gospel. That's the answer to racism. Ironically, 
the answer to all of the violence that's happening in our country, ironically, violence is the answer. The violent, bloody death of Jesus for sinners like us. That's the answer. We cannot stop. We cannot grow weary in our efforts to declare that every human being made in God's image has dignity and worth regardless of skin color. Please let me say that again. We cannot stop or grow weary in our efforts to declare that every human being made in God's image has dignity and worth regardless of their skin color. Don't get weary in the fight for the sanctity of human life. And don't be disengaged and say, well, I'm not of that particular race, so what does it matter? You have to come alongside and enter in with people as they weep and as they suffer. God the Father will be pleased when we do this, and he will never forget your efforts to see racism end. You want to heal our land? You want to see our land healed? The gospel is the answer. When it lands on the lands of our hearts, then our land will be healed. Until then, we can talk all day. But as Christians, we have to be involved. And it may just mean that you just come alongside someone and say, how are you doing in all this? How do you feel? And maybe as you see the law enforcement driving around, that you pray for them. If we want to see healing come to our land, We have to let the gospel land on our own individual hearts and to be motivated to go and love and serve others. Please understand that the Hebrews were just like us. It's so easy to grow weary in ministry. It's so easy to grow weary loving and serving others. It's so easy to get sluggish. It's so easy to lose hope. Have you ever been there? You just get tired of serving in that ministry, serving those people. They get harder to love. You keep serving like the Hebrews were doing, but you're just tired. Have you ever been there? Of course you have. And so what gives you the fuel to continue serving? What gives you the fuel to continue loving someone? The answer is simple. It's the gospel. And when you hear how Jesus loved and served you, when you, at at your worst, it should cause your heart to keep loving and serving other people when they are at their worst. And that's why you need to keep rehearsing the gospel. If you're weak today and you're tired and you're worn out from ministry and you're tired of serving your family, tired of serving your spouse, tired of serving your friends and your neighbors, tired of serving others at church, look to Jesus today and drink in gospel rain. It's only as we hear about what Jesus has done for us in loving and serving us when we were at our worst. It's only then that we'll be energized to love and serve others for God's glory. Hebrews 6 is not about debating the meaning meaning of this whole chapter. Satan would love for us to get caught up in all the different interpretations of Hebrews 6 that we looked at last week. He'd love for us to lose sight of seeing the glory of the gospel so that it causes us to lay down our lives and to love and serve others. Listen, if you walk away from Hebrews chapter 6 at any point and you want to debate people on the meaning of the passage, you've missed the whole point of the passage If you walk away from Hebrews 6 and you get worked up over another Christian's interpretation of the passage, you've missed the entire point of the passage. The point of the passage is to let the gospel rain down on you so that you soak it up and go love and serve others for God's glory. 
And the devil does not want us to know and to relish in the gospel because he knows that when we do know and relish in the gospel, then we will go and love and serve others for God's glory. And he does not want to see that happen. The devil wants us to live self-absorbed lives just like him. He wants us to become weak and tired and frustrated and give up love and service. He wants us to live self-absorbed lives just like him. He wants us to check out on what's happening in our nation and check out on what's happening with African Americans in our country, if you say that's not my race, just check out. That's what the devil wants us to do. So this passage is about everything that the devil is opposed to. It's about getting refreshed by the gospel so that we can go and love and serve others for the glory of God's name. In their book, The Life We Never Expected, Andrew and Rachel Wilson remind us that God's purposes come about through millions of unnamed people doing unheard of things in unnoticeable ways to the glory of God. God's kingdom is extended in this world through millions of unnamed people doing things that nobody ever hears about to the glory of God. People may not see you serving and loving others, but God does, and it brings him glory. People may not see you working behind the scenes, but God does. People may never hear of your efforts to see racism and, and systematic injustice end. But God does. And when you keep loving and working, it extends his purposes in this world. And it's all done by very ordinary people doing very ordinary mundane things for the good of others and the glory of God's name. So when you don't want to teach that Sunday school class, drink in gospel rain and let it produce a crop that is useful to others. And you will receive a blessing. And it's normal sometimes to not want to teach that class, just to set some of you free. And when you don't want to serve your children because they're driving you crazy, and that's normal, drink in gospel rain and let it produce a crop that is useful to your children. In whatever way that you find yourself exhausted, in whatever ministry it is, remember that God is not unjust. He will not overlook your hard work and all the ways you express your love for him by serving others. There's a blessing there. God can't remember all the bad things you have done and he won't forget all the good things you do. Look to Jesus and do good works for the good of your neighbor and the good of this city, and the good of our law enforcement, and work hard to see injustices end, and do it all for God's glory. And your heavenly Father, who loves you just as if you were his only child, he will take what you do for him, and he will put those pictures on his refrigerator. And it's all because of Jesus. There is hope, even though right now when you turn on the news, it feels like there's no hope. There is hope. The kingdom of God will overcome as we're about to sing by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. By a bloody, violent death of Jesus as that message is proclaimed, Christ crucified for sinners like us and by the word of our testimony. And that testimony is the gospel. As we speak the gospel, the kingdom will advance in this world. Let's pray. Father, we just humble ourselves this morning and
recognize how sinful we are, Father. If we're honest with ourselves, there are little pockets of racism in our heart. For some people group somewhere, somebody different from us, or maybe even somebody within our own race, a particular culture within our own race that we despise. We ask you, God, to forgive us and to cleanse us. And God, cause your church to rise up in these days to love people, to be kind and gentle, to point them to your son. Cause us to enter into a season of lamenting and and weeping for the injustices in this world and, and for this nation. God, if you don't intervene, we're going to fracture and come apart at the seams unless you intervene, Father. So would you have mercy on us as a people? And may we find hope in the gospel that this is a great time to be alive as a Christian. It's a great time to share the good news and the hope of the gospel with a lost and broken world. May we not retreat, Father, but may we be engaged and tell people that you'll forget all the bad things they've done and you'll remember all the good things they do if they trust in your son. Would you empower us by your spirit as you send us out into a lost and broken world? For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.